Oh God, as the choir has just sung, that you would draw from our hearts a new, a new song, a new expression of praise for our sleep-deprived lives in the West. Oh, this invitation of rest. What does that mean? How do we connect with it? And how in the world can this secular, postmodern civilization ever get a hold of your offer? It's got to start with us. Teach us today that we might have that which out of our own experience we can share. In Jesus' name, amen. The last time you and I were together, we were considering, considering God's radical call to Islam. And I'm grateful for the dialogue, the debate, the discussion that that teaching has engendered. I've heard from many of you via email, heard from some of our viewers on television as well. We need to be wrestling with so immense a challenge. And as the Aussies say, good on you, mate, good on you, good for you. We've got to wrap our minds around this. One of you wrote an email to me stating that you've been in dialogue for some time now with a uh, professor for Islamic studies in a Middle Eastern country that uh, needs to remain unnamed. And you say, I'm going to share this teaching with him. Have him listen to it, download it from the website and examine it himself. And by the way, if you weren't here uh, our last time together, Star Rising Over Islam is the title of the teaching two weeks ago, and you can get it on our website. I'll give you that website in just a minute. It's on the new study guide that you're going to receive. I got another email from one of our leading contacts in the Muslim world. This particular individual has direct relationships with imams. And he was praising God for the teaching that is here in Holy Scripture, that which you and I were sharing just a few days ago. And then on the other side of the coin, I did receive an email from one of our viewers, greatly disturbed that we would link Allah with the one true God and Deeply upset that we would have the audacity to call young adults to commit to a mission to Islamic countries. I wrote back to that viewer and I shared with him, you know, while it's clear we don't, we don't hold to the same perspectives, I am certain that you join me in praying for God's outpouring of blessing upon this great people, the great people of Islam, irrespective of what your, your, your or my perspective might be. But today what I want to do, jet lagged and all, I want, to, I want to switch gears. I want to shift from the religious east, Islam. I want to shift to the west, to the secular postmodern west. Because having returned just a few hours ago, as I mentioned, from Australia, Karen and I, I must confess to you that I have been brooding in my heart and mind how in the world, Islam is one challenge, but how in the world will the everlasting gospel penetrate the secular postmodern West. Every time I visit Australia, I am taken aback by the bold, almost brash Western secularism that it so powerfully displays. Let me just put some uh, snaps. We were preaching in Sydney eight times there in Sydney in the little pictures that we took a few days ago. Sydney, obviously the most uh, telegenic, photogenic, most recognized urban skyline in the world, I'm sure. 
When you look at Sydney, the towering glass and steel, you realize this is the heart of Australia. It, it, is, it is a nation on the cutting edge. They are... They, Coined the word contemporary, as it were. They live with state of the art. You watch their television as we did. You read their newspapers as I did. You get a sense of their, you review their history and you realize the indomitable pluck, the raw energy that raised up this nation clustered only on the seacoast of Australia. It's this barren wilderness in the middle, but that raised up this mighty nation. I mean, any, any uh, culture that can come up with good on you, mate, and no worries. They are a wonderful people, a fun people to be around. But for them and for the West, all of this comes at a price. Karen and I were walking through one of the resort suburbs of Sydney called Manly. And we came on a, on a uh, psychiatrist or psychologist's office. She had a big uh, metal plaque outside her door. And it was her name and then all these initials after it. So she's obviously, obviously highly trained. And then underneath, she advertises what it is, the, the service she provides, and she uh, indicates that she is, in fact, a counselor for stress relief and sleep disorders. This is in a, a, a lovely seaside resort on the outskirts of Sydney. You realize that for all that we have accomplished in the West, it has come at a high, high price. This, this, this consumption of all the daylight hours, all the nighttime hours, 24-7, working, surviving, partying, playing, but in the consumption of it all. What do we end up with? We end up with this massive sleep deprivation, not from jet lag, but just from simply living in the West. Sleep deprivation. And by the way, not in Australia alone. Come on, it's the whole West. This, this is... Uh, USA Today, three months ago. Thank you, Larry Ulrey, one of the faculty here at Andrews, for sending this to me. Look at this headline. I mean, wouldn't this catch your eye? A call to honor the Sabbath. So I'm, I'm instantly uh, intrigued. Turns out this piece is written by a Presbyterian pastor, all right? Pastoring in Fairfax, uh, Virginia. I'm going to read uh, just a line or two from the middle of his essay. Every, uh, this is an editorial essay. Whether religious or not, people know, okay? People in the West, Australia, Western Europe, UK. We've got some friends here from Brazil today. Brazil fits into the category of the postmodern West. Uh, whether religious or not, people know that they need to take a day off in order to maintain their sanity and remain efficient and productive at work. But I'm convinced, writes this Presbyterian pastor, I'm convinced that downtime is not enough. We need a formal day of rest. A true Sabbath gives us time to refresh and renew ourselves, regain proper perspective, and redirect our lives to what is good and true and worthwhile. There is something positive and even creative about allowing ourselves to take a break, as noted in the Bible when it says, God finishes the work of creation on the seventh day by resting. And then he writes in Genesis 2.2, resting is an act of creativity. You know, I got to thinking, just, just part of this brooding, post-Australia brooding. Could it be, come on, think with me for a moment. Could it be that the secular West's sleep deprivation, which is really pandemic, pandemic in our Western culture, could it be that that sleep deprivation, in fact, is opening a massive door to the postmodern world? I mean, you think about postmoderns. They simultaneously starve for community and rest. They want to belong. They want to be a part. They need rest. The two most 
passionate of their needs, community and rest, they lose one rest in pursuit of the other community. Could it be that we have discovered the perfect gift that if they could embrace the gift, they'd meet their deepest felt needs? With this caveat, with this caveat. If that perfect gift, however, if that perfect gift hardly impacts our own existences, how can we possibly be effective in communicating that gift to the secular West and to the secular East. Open your Bible with me, that caveat in place, and let's take a look at rumor number two. We're doing a series here called Rumors from the East. Open to the Bible's last book. This is rumor number two. These first few uh, sessions we have spent together have been devoted to rumor number one. There are only three rumors, only three. These rumors from the East, titled the series Rumors from the East. Today, we, we, we take a look at rumor number two, the Apocalypse, Revelation chapter 7. I want you to read some verses right here at the outset with me, please. Revelation chapter 7, I'll be in the New King James Version today. If you didn't bring a Bible, there'll be a, a pew Bible in the rack in front of you. It's page, uh, page 826 in the pew Bible. Whatever translation you have, read along with me, please. Revelation chapter 7, let's just read the first three verses. Revelation 7, beginning in verse 1, after these things. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on earth, on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And then, verse 2, I saw a fifth angel. All right, there are already four there. Now here comes the fifth. I saw another angel ascending from the east. Key word. Three rumors about the east. Only three in, the, in apocalyptic literature. So we're now moving to number two. I saw an angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice in the Greek, megalophone, megaphone. This is a huge voice. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Verse three. And he said to them, do not harm the earth, the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Stop it right there. Would you scribble this down, please? Take out your new study guide and make note that this is rumor number two. The study guides ought to be in your worship bulletin today. Ushers, thank you for uh, getting us. If you do that right now, gentlemen, just hold your hand up if you came in and you didn't get a worship bulletin when you came in or several of you with just one bulletin. I'd like you to have, please, one of these uh, study guides for yourself. The opening quotation is worth it right there. The Presbyterian pastor's quotation. We're going to get to that in just a second here. Hold your hand up. And those of you who are watching on television, you can get the same study guide. Let me put that website on the screen right now. www. There it is. www.pmchurch.tv. Pioneerchurch.tv. Click onto the teaching series, Rumors from the East. This is part five. This one is entitled East Winds. When you click on the East Winds, it'll say study guide. Say, yes, I want that study guide. And you'll have the same study guide right there on your computer screen. And you can go through a study guide with us. If you're watching it on DVD, just hit the pause button, get that study guide, and then please uh, examine this teaching with us. So would you jot it down, please? Let's put it up uh, on the screen. Rumor number two, just write in the number two. This is the second of the three rumors from the East. This whole teaching series devoted to just these three rumors from the East. Rumor number two is Revelation 7 and, and then a verse from Revelation 14. Now let's go to that quotation from the Presbyterian pastor. You have it right there. You have to fill it in in order for this to be uh, complete. Henry G. Brinton, pastor of the Fairfax, Virginia Presbyterian Church, wrote this essay in USA Today three months ago. The problem, now they, they, these are Brinton's words, the problem with ignoring the Sabbath. Would you write that in, please? That's his word. The problem with ignoring the Sabbath is that it hurts us as individuals, families, and communities. And then he quotes an author 
whose book I have in my library, Wayne Mueller. Okay, Wayne Mueller, therapist, minister, and best-selling author, is convinced that modern life has become a violent enterprise. We, we make war on our bodies by pushing them beyond their limits, war on our children by failing to give them our time, and war on our communities by failing to be kind and generous and connected to our neighbors. Now, to bring an end to this destruction, here's where the pastor's going, we have to establish a healthier balance between work and rest. Right in the word rest. We need this balance between work and rest. But I'm convinced, now this is Brenton, not Mueller, I'm convinced that downtime is not enough. We need a formal day of rest, a true Sabbath, end quote. His words. Now, what in the world does this Presbyterian pastor's essay in USA Today and the need for a formal Sabbath have to do with the fifth angel's cry in Revelation chapter 7? These words we read just a moment ago. The clue lies tucked away in a rather obscure phrase, the seal, the seal of the living God. Let's set the table again. Let's just kind of envision what we just read in Revelation 7. So you have four angels, right? Four angels, four corners of the world holding the four winds. The number four is inclusive. When the number four appears in the apocalypse, it indicates the entire globe. Well, that makes sense. North, south, east, west. The four corners. All right. So you've got four angels holding back the four winds. By the way, we know the scene comes just before the return of Christ because the last description in chapter 6 is this glorious depiction of the second coming. So in the context of the end of human existence as we know it, these first three verses of Revelation 7 take place. Now, what we know from... Revelation 7, there are two realities we know. Jot these down in your study guide. I'll put it on the screen for you. This much we know. The friends of God, the friends of God will be sealed in their foreheads. We know that just from a cursory reading, which we've just done. Number one, the friends of God will be sealed in their foreheads. And number two, the four winds will be let loose. All four winds will be let loose in a final global cataclysm. And by the way, I really don't blame the residents of New Orleans for thinking that one of those winds got loosed a little early. Just a few weeks ago, as you know, I was down in New Orleans on the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. It destroyed the New Orleans First Seventh-day Adventist Church, so they're opening the church after rebuilding it on the one-year anniversary. I toured the still raw destruction of, of some of their parishes there in New Orleans. And then, after the final sermon, one of the church members hands me a DVD. He says, you need to take a look at this when you get home. Our senior leadership team sat down and looked at it. It is amazing. I want to share with you just a brief clip. These are home movies taken by a gentleman who is on the second floor of his house as the waters are ascending from the broken levee not far from his home. So that's, that's the setting you're going to see. This is amateur video. Uh, we'll put it on the screen right now. The levee has broken, and that's the front yard, folks. I mean, it looks like a massive sea. You, you see the wind, the fury of the, uh, the, ra the raging hurricane. That's the balcony of the second floor. Keep your eyes on this. So he's on the second floor of his home. The water has already penetrated the first floor. And in just a moment, he's going to give you... Look at the waves. Those are the waves in his front yard. Now watch this. This is his front door. This is first floor. You see the water? It's now one foot from the top of the front door on the first floor. He's standing there at the top of the stairs. And you have to wonder what is going through this man's mind as he takes this picture. Because the water is rising as you walk. Now it's coming under the door. Second floor. The water now is coming under the door. 
He shoots again outside. The place is a raging maelstrom. Ugly, dark water. And now the water is beginning to burst underneath the door and you can see little spurts of it. It now penetrates the second floor. In a moment, you're going to see his, uh, his shot of the veranda. So this is the second floor veranda. He's going to look out the glass doors to that veranda and you will notice now the water beginning to pound on the second floor. There's the veranda. Look at that water. Second floor. There's only one way for him to go. He has to cut a hole in his roof to survive. And you know that's what they did. Get into the attic, cut a hole in the roof above the attic, and then sit on the roof for, for a hopeful rescue. I mean, you take a look at that clip and you realize the unrestrained, raw power of nature gone wild. It, it is a terrible thing to behold. And here is Revelation 7 indicating that the day is coming when all four winds get loosed. But I wish you'd scribble this down because I'm not afraid about that day. And you and I don't have to be afraid. Write this down. You know I'm not afraid? Because we have Psalm 46, verse 1. Write down that, that reference. That is, so, that is such a beautiful uh, assurance. Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge. Do you know this one? Say it out loud if you do. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, will not we fear? Will the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea? Though the waters roar and be troubled? Hallelujah. We have no, nothing to fear for the future. We have that assurance. But before the, before the four winds are released in that final cataclysm, the fifth angel has a mission. And that's where we're headed here. Let's take a look again at uh, verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. Hit the pause button right there. Because there is the, there's the word, the clue that we're looking for, the word east. And we've reminded ourselves already in rumor number one that something happens every day of the year in the east. What is it that ascends out of the east every day of the year? What comes up? Jot it down in your study guide, would you please? But of course, in the east, the sun rises, which is the very same imagery we saw in rumor number one in Revelation 18.1. The sun of righteousness rising one last time in the east, higher and higher until the earth is flooded with earth shine. One last spectacular burst of God's glory. And then the end comes. We called it the last sunrise. In fact, this was, uh, this was uh, uh, an amazing uh, recognition. Do you realize that the Bible actually, in one case, names Jesus the sunrise? Take a look at this. The, the, the Greek word, you have it in your study guide, for east is anatole. Anatole means the rising. And so that's why the, the east is where the sun rises. Dr. Luke uses the very same word as a proper name for Christ. In fact, jot this down, will you? Luke 178 calls Christ the promised capital A, as it were, Anatole, or the sunrise. New American Standard Version actually calls him, he is the Messiah, is the sunrise. Let's put those uh, verses on the screen. Luke 178, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, What's the good news? It will shine on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. It will guide our feet into the way of peace. Luke's point is Christ is the promised sunrise. The Messiah at, the, at his first coming is the sunrise. John comes along in the apocalypse and says he is the promised sunrise at the second coming. Because, jot this down, the sun always shines. The sun always shines when Jesus shows up. You know, if we only would spend that extra time... In the presence of Christ. He is going to shine on you if you just allow yourself in your sleep-deprived, run-ragged schedule. If you just give yourself that extra moment in His presence.
The sun will shine. You know, Moses, you remember the story about Moses who would go up and have this personal commun- communion with the pre-incarnate Christ. And you remember when he would come down from those moments of worship, they would actually have to put, you remember what they put over his face? What did they put? They put a veil over his face. You can't hide it. When you've been alone with Jesus, it will shine from your life. Not like Moses. Not physically. But it will shine intellectually. It will shine emotionally. It will shine socially. It will shine personally. Ah. Whatever's happening here, what's clear is that this sunrise means that Jesus is saturated in this, this last scene, this, this vision of Revelation 7. It is saturated with the glory of Jesus himself. So the question is, what's happening here? Verse 2, read it again. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And he said, verse 3, do not harm the earth, the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now in add verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel are sealed on their foreheads. Now we're going to sidestep the whole question of the, of the 144,000. I put it in your study. We, we had a major teaching on this some time ago. John the Baptist Generation, part four. We get into, and you get a study guide with that. And you can take a look at that in your own leisure. Let's just forget the 144,000, except, suffice it to say, and jot this down please, the 144,000 represent a final generation of loyal, right in the word, loyal friends of God. The 144,000, a loyal generation to God. And by the way, in between services, our minister of music came to me. He said, Dwight, you know, hear the, hear the silhouettes singing today. James Lee III used to sing with the silhouettes. He's a graduate of Andrews Academy. He went to Andrews University. He also went to Michi- University of Michigan. And get this, this, uh, I can't scribble this down for me, this coming Thursday night in the Kennedy, in the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts, one of the most famous performing arts centers in this nation. James Lee the third, one of our own right here. James Lee the third is providing the music to be performed by the National Symphony Orchestra, the title of his composition, Beyond Rivers of Vision. And in the third movement, in the third movement, James has intentionally inserted the numbers 144000, 144,000. I said, Ken, how could that be? He says, well, you, you assign a numeric value to the numbers with middle C being zero, C sharp being one, D being two, and so on. It goes up to uh, 11, up to B. And uh, there is this sequence, C sharp, E, E, C, 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 one, four, four, zero, zero, zero. Just thought you'd be interested to know that. doesn't fit into the teaching at all, but... Uh... I, you know, I thought, here is, it, here is this kid that grew up in our midst, and his num- this is the first time in the history of our little community of faith, I can say to those of you watching on uh, television, this is the first time in our, our little community of faith history where a composition from a member of this little community of faith is being performed by the National Orchestra. And uh, Ken Logan, our, our minister of music, is flying over on Thursday to be a part of that event. Isn't that something? Yeah, come on. It's just a little bit, moment of joy. 144,000. What does it have to do with what we're studying? Absolutely nothing. All right. <laughs> now, I want to go back to that line that, we, that you just scribbled in. The 144,000 represent a final generation of loyal, loyal friends of God. You say, Dwight, how do you know that they're loyal? Ah, because of the great New Testament principle that we have been reminding ourselves of here in the apocalypse. That is, scholars are clear. 
that almost every word, every phrase in the Apocalypse, in the book of Revelation, is borrowed heavily from an Old Testament source. So that if we can find the Old Testament sources, we can unlock the meaning of the Apocalypse. And this passage we've just read is no exception. Take a look at this verse. Amazing. The book of Ezekiel again. Rumor number one had us going to Ezekiel. Rumor number two has us going to Ezekiel. And I see two of my colleagues sitting out here, John Pauline and Ronko Stefanovich. And I'm telling you what, gentlemen, I am amazed at how often Paul, uh, not Paul, how John dips into the Ezekiel well for his imagery. The Ezekiel well. Amazed. All right. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter nine. What page number would that be? Page 562. And this is a somber story. It's just four verses long. But as soon as you read the story, instantly you'll recognize, oh, that's where John got that whole metaphor that he writes in Revelation 7. All right. Ezekiel 4. I've got to quit talking and find it. Ezekiel 9, rather. Ezekiel 9, verses 1 through 4. There we go. Then he, capital H, he, that would be God. Then God, God called out in my hearing. So Ezekiel's having a vision. He called out with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. Verse 2. And suddenly, shoom, six men materialize. Six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in hand. This is not a pretty scene. They have a weapon of, of destruction uh, affixed to their sides. One man among them. So there's a seventh. One man among them was clothed with linen. All white. He's clothed in the garb of the high priest on the Day of Atonement, which is the the day symbolizing judgment in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement. So he's clothed in white. He doesn't have a weapon. Notice what he has here. One man, clothed with linen, had a writer's inkhorn at his side. So he had this old-fashioned little, you know, inkhorn where you you dip the quill in and then you write. So he has this writer's inkhorn. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. That would be inside... Uh, That would be in the temple. Verse 3. Now, the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub, there in the most holy place where it had been, to the threshold of the temple. And God called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, now here it goes, verse 4. Go throughout the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark where? Put a mark where? Put a mark on the foreheads of the men and women who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within. Now, here's what's so fascinating. The Hebrew word for mark there is actually the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's, it's tav. Tav. And in Ezekiel's time, when you wrote the, that letter of the alphabet, you wrote it as an X. So what God is telling the man dressed in white, he says, you go through the city and those people who share my concern... For the collapse, the moral collapse of this city, when you come to somebody who shares that concern, I want you to put a little X right on the forehead. Mark them. Notice, ladies and gentlemen, the ones marked are not marked for destruction, are they? No, 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 no. They're marked for being spared. Put a mark. Save that one. Now, what is the behavior of... The rest of the populace that is so burdensome to God. Just, just drop back in chapter 8 to verse 16. Look at 8.16. What's going on in that city? This, this will be a clue for you. Chapter 8, verse 16. So he, God, brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the church. Their backs are turned toward the temple of the Lord. And their faces toward the east. And they were worshiping the sun 
toward the east. In other words, in the midst of this community of faith, there are those who are worshiping the sun. Those would be the ones that would not get the mark of God's allegiance. What's Ezekiel's point? Jot it down, will you please, in your study guide. Clearly, the precedent here in Ezekiel is helping us understand that the mark or seal that God places in the foreheads of individuals is a sign of allegiance. It's not of disloyalty. It's a sign of allegiance to God. In fact, Revelation contrasts two marks. Remember from your study of Revelation. There, there is, and both marks go in the forehead of individuals. In Revelation, we just, we just read about the seal of God which goes in the forehead. But there is another mark in chapter 13 called the mark of the beast. And it also goes where? It goes in the forehead. Why in the forehead? Because the forehead is a sign of proactive, intentional, personal choice. I choose. I choose. I choose to be loyal to God, in this case, or to the beast in uh, chapter 13's case. But very interesting about the beast. The beast will also identify its loyal adherence, not only with a mark to the forehead, but the beast will also put a mark where else on the person. Do you remember where else? Where is it? On the hand. Notice that with God, there can be no hand, no hand mark to identify loyalty to God. Why? Because the hand simply symbolizes compliance without agreement. I'll just go along. You know, I'm not into this. I don't care. Go ahead. Lead me. So it can go on the hand for the beast or the forehead. But God says, no, 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 no. Nothing on the hand for me because you can't follow the crowd into heaven. You can't just follow somebody. You will have to make the decision yourself. When you make the choice, I'll put it next. Right on you. You're a loyal friend of mine. Hmm. Now back to the question. What is this seal of the living God that is symbolically placed in the foreheads of God's end time loyal friends? There's one more clue that we have to note. Go back to a Revelation. Last verse here. Revelation chapter 14. Take a look at this. One more clue. Put Revelation 14 with Revelation 7. Bingo. We have it. And by the way, that's the key, ladies and gentlemen. The key is to let the Bible interpret itself. I could sit up here and say, you know what? I know what those marks are. That's a computer barcode. There's a little chip that gets put in your hand or in your forehead. I mean, I can tell you anything and you have no way to disprove it. You say, well, maybe so, maybe so. But if we let the Bible interpret itself, we get spared some of the craziness that circulates in evangelical circles today. People just grabbing for straws. What could that be? And so when you buy the National Enquirer at the supermarket, they say, barcode found in head of boy. Craziness. Let the Bible interpret itself. So let's do that. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him, how many people? 144,000. Here are the the same people that were sealed. With him, 144,000, having his father's name written where? Written in their forehead. Ladies and gentlemen, would you write that down, please? The seal of the living God in their foreheads in chapter 7, verse 3 is the equivalent of the name, write it in, is the equivalent of the name of the Father in their foreheads in chapter 14, verse 1. A equals B. What's the big deal about a name? Listen, when you put your name on something, what does that signify? When you put your name, when you scribble your name on something, what are you saying by scribbling your name? What are you saying? That belongs to me. That is mine. I want to, I want to uh, 
share something with you. This um, was given to us by our friend Doug Martin, who is over in Hong Kong. I'm bringing a camera up here so that you can see what it is on the, on the screen. This is a beautiful little uh, lacquered case. And if you open the case up, inside the case is a lovely little something that is called... Can you see this? This is a seal. Now, I know that this isn't... This, this isn't something Doug just made up because uh, I grew up as a missionary's kid in Japan. And my father used to have a, a seal. Japanese and Chinese use the same characters. So my father had a seal made with his own characters. And Doug has told me, and I have to accept this by faith, that in fact this is my name on these... Uh, these uh, <laughs> wouldn't it be awful if it was something terrible that you, you stamp? But the point of the seal is, whenever, whenever you transact business with the seal, when you put the seal on that document... That is as official as official can get in the Orient. So that what you do, let me turn my notes over here. What you do is you take this seal and it comes with a nice little uh, red pasty ink. So you take the seal and you, you just put it in. You make sure you get some of that red paste on it. And then the document. You just take it. And I, I don't know if this is right side up or upside down, but who cares? So you, you take it and you just go... And when you pull it off, voila, in Chinese, this book belongs to me. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Because, and would you jot this down, please? In the Orient, in the Orient, when you use a seal, a seal signifies ownership. Write that down, please. Let's put that on the screen so we make sure that we get it. There. The seal in the Orient is considered a symbol of ownership. Look, if you invited me to your house for dinner today, we'd love to come, by the way, except uh, I've got to be with a small group having dinner. But if, if, if we came to your house for dinner and I brought this little seal straight from the sermon and while you were in the kitchen, while you're in the kitchen getting things ready, I go through your library and I go stamp, 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 my name all through your books. Would that work? No, it wouldn't work. You know why? Because you can only stamp your seal on that which belongs to you. Seals cannot go on that which does not belong to you. You'd never have us over for dinner again. But that's the point of a seal. The seal can only be placed on that which belongs to the one making the stamp. You get it? I saw another angel coming up in the midst of the four. And he yelled out to the four, hey guys, hold it. Don't let, don't let any more of those Katrinas get through. Don't let four at once, please. Hold it back until we have sealed the friends of Jesus on their foreheads, nothing on the hand, no following the crowd, not for this group. They are going to make the choice to follow the eternal father for the rest of eternity. Hold the winds until we can go. The name of the father on the loyal friends of Jesus. That's what the angel says. Which is why it reads, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And he said, Do not harm the earth, the sea, and the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Would you write this down, please? At the end of time, God places a seal of ownership. They belong to me. That's what the seal says. They belong to me. It's my name. I'm putting my name on the foreheads of those who have chosen to be loyal to me. He stamps his name on their foreheads. Angels, please, you see that little X there? That little X means spare them. When the four winds are let loose, make sure that I do not lose a single loyal friend of mine. 
make sure. X. Spare. Save. They belong to me. Question. Conceivably, couldn't God declare that about every man, woman, and child on this planet? Couldn't he, by virtue of the fact that he is our mutual creator, couldn't he declare the whole earth is mine? But of course he could. And in fact, that's precisely why he gave the human race the Seventh-day Sabbath long ago. Would you jot this down in your study guide? The Sabbath is a seal. It's a seal in time whereby all earth children can be reminded that indeed they do belong to their creator. Seal goes down. That their creator, in fact, is their forever friend. They belong to him, which, by the way, is the grand and glorious teaching of the, of the fourth commandment in the Decalogue written on stone. Let's put the fourth commandment. Now, in fact, I wish you'd look it up in your Bible. Don't take the screen's word for it. Just look it up, please, in your Bible. Exodus chapter 20. One last text to look up. Exodus 20. Look at verse 8. This is the fourth commandment. Yeah, you remember these words, do you? Fourth commandment, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Why? 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 Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Having put his seal upon a perfect creation, God then rested. And he said, when you, when you come to that day, I wish you would rest with me. In the resting in me, it allows my name to go on your thinking process. Let me stamp that I'm your creator and that you recognize you belong to me. Let me seal you on the day I see you from the very beginning. That's why Jesus can come along. Look at this. Mark chapter 2. Remember these words? Verse 27, And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and woman, and not man and woman for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. We were going over our PowerPoint yesterday with Anthony Wills, who's a computing engineer major here, about wrapping it up at Andrews University. And Anthony said, Hey, Dwight, but what is this about the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath? All Jesus is reminding us is that on what, on what day of creation was the human race begun? On what day? What, what number was it? Day six, right? Day six. On Friday, as it were, Adam and Eve are created. It's after Friday. Once God has a new generation of friends, a, a race of personal companions for this planet. Once he has the friends, then he makes the day to celebrate the friendship. He doesn't make the day and say, man, I need somebody to worship me on this day. I need some humans. No, it's the other way around. The Sabbath was made for man and woman, not man and woman for the Sabbath. And that's why it's no wonder that Jesus, who is Lord of the Sabbath, cries out the invitation of the Sabbath. I love these words. In fact, write them in in your study guide. The, the, the well-known words, Matthew 11:28. Jesus cries out, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you what? I'll give you, I'll give you rest. Write it down. I'll give you rest. Come to me. The Son of Righteousness who rises one last time with his outstretched arms, healing in that outstretched arms. He said, you know what? Postmodern secular West, if you just come to me, I can heal your sleep deprivation. I can heal your, 
your stress anxieties. Come to me. I'll give you rest. I tell you what, if Australia could come and America and Europe and China, write this down in the world, Japan, if they could find this gift of rest for their sleep-deprived, restless souls. We live in a world of restlessness today. If only they would come. I tell you what, I need to end by saying, if only we would come to Him for that rest. For I fear that we who have championed the day of the Sabbath have sadly forgotten the way of the Sabbath. We've turned this day of loyal friendship with the Creator into a day of clock watching and bed filling. And the way after, after running ragged all week from overwork and overstudy, we collapse on the Sabbath, contented to call our extra long afternoon nap as the obligatory rest for the seventh day. Hallelujah, I got my rest in. Oh, day of rest and gladness. Can you imagine? Do you suppose the Creator looks forward to spending the Sabbath with you? I'm not asking about you and the Creator. Does He enjoy spending the Sabbath with you? If the Sabbath is simply me unraveling because I have driven myself all through the previous six days. And ladies and gentlemen, I repeat, if the Sabbath rest is not attractive to us who know better, how under heaven could we possibly present it to a secular postmodern West? How can we tell, how can we tell them about something we haven't experienced ourselves? We can't. Let me close with this simple suggestion written a century ago. The Sabbath is a golden clasp that unites God and His people, His friends. Daily, write that in please. Daily, the Sabbath, daily it will be their prayer that the sanctification of the Sabbath, God's seal of ownership, daily they'll pray that it might rest upon them. Every day, write that in, every day they will have the companionship of Christ. Did you get that, guys? The seventh-day Sabbath is most meaningful when it becomes a daily and everyday kind of preoccupation. Hey, let me ask you a question. When a man falls in love with a woman, though their time each week may be limited to a day here or a dinner there, the fact remains that when you're in love, are you not preoccupied with that love the whole week through? Huh? Are you not? Come on. I'm not talking about hot flashes all day long. Let's be clear. What I'm talking about is in the midst of a frenetic day. I can stop and I can think of Karen, and I tell you what, it brings a certain glow and joy to me because you know why? I am happily married to her. Do you know why I know I'm happily married to her? Because every day when I leave the house, she puts me up against the wall and she says, repeat after me, I'm a happily married man. And I repeat it, and I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy. <laughs> oh, mercy. I tell you, when I turn on my laptop, it's Karen's picture. For my, for, my, for my desktop, that's Karen's picture. When I open this wall right here and I do business in this community, when I open the wall to take anything out of it, the first picture you see is Karen's. Why? Because I'm preoccupied with her. I can't spend all day with her. I got a life. <laughs> I, I can't spend all day with her, and she can't spend all day with me. I've given you six days to labor. I've given you six days to labor. I'm not asking you to quit your jobs. I'm not asking you to think, God, 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 24-7. I'm not asking you. I've given you six days to do what you've got to do, but I have given you also the seventh day to move from preoccupation to personal contact. I need some time with you. I want to draw you into me. You've got to have time with the one you love. You can be preoccupied. That's good. But you still need the time when you come together. And that preoccupation becomes personal contact. That's what the Sabbath is. Personal contact with the Creator. 
I know you got six days, you got to study. I know you got to get the degree here. I know all about it. Ah, what did that quote tell you? How did it read? The Sabbath is a golden class that unites God and His people daily. It will be their prayer. Here's the suggestion. It will be their prayer every day that the sanctification of the Sabbath, God's seal of ownership, may rest upon them every day. They will have the companionship of Christ. So here's the suggestion, ladies and gentlemen. What if we prayed every day? Put it on the screen, please. What if we prayed this prayer every single day? Oh, God. Next. Oh, God, may your Sabbath blessing rest upon me today. I know it's Sunday, but I'm asking for your Sabbath blessing. I know it's Monday, but I'm asking for your Sabbath blessing. I know it's Wednesday, but may your Sabbath blessing rest on me. You're saying, Dwight, what's the Sabbath blessing? The Sabbath blessing is resting in the realization that he has put his ownership on me. No worries. You don't have to worry anymore. Why do you have to worry about life? Do you understand that the Father has His name? He has His name on you. When I was a kid growing up, did I ever worry? Tell me the truth. Did I ever worry about a blooming thing? No. You know why? Because I had a dad. I had a father and I knew that everything was in my dad's hands and there was nothing for me to do but to just have fun. When you have a father who is in control and he's got his name on you, he says, you belong to me, boy, girl. I'm your dad. I'm your Abba Father. No worries. No worries. You don't have to worry about getting through Andrews University. You'll get through just fine. He, he got you here. He'll get you through and he'll get you out of here. No worries. You're worried about your bank account. You're worried about running out of money. Your job is down to a final thread. Your career is on the line. No worries. Do you understand that in the middle of that pretty forehead of yours, there is a stamp, a stamp. With the crimson of Calvary, it's red too. With the crimson of Calvary. And the stamp says, that's mine. That boy is mine. You can do what you want, devil, to him. But that boy is mine and I'm going to protect him. That X, X marks the spot where life belongs to me. Ladies and gentlemen, no worries. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. When somebody has made an infinite investment that expensive in your life, Don't you suppose he is now committed to protecting the investment he's already made? No worries. No worries. Ah, ladies and gentlemen, it is time. It is high time to reclaim the rest of the Sabbath for the rest of the week. The rest doesn't start on the seventh day. It starts on the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth days. You rest in Jesus six days. The seventh day then, now we're together. The world is shut out. Our television is off. A stereo has now gone through adjustment. My reading material is beyond eyesight in my dormitory room. The textbooks are covered by towels. I want undistracted communion with the father who says, Boy, I've already written my name on your sweaty brow. You. No worries.